In the run-up to the first Climate Adaptation Summit in 2021, organized by the Global Center on Adaptation, ECDPM wants to learn more about this strategy to tackle climate change. Simply put, climate adaptation means adjusting life to a changing climate. Throughout the series, we will talk about how adaptation can build better food systems or how it can be a means to peace building. We want to present practical ideas that are relevant for Europe and Africa. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Hello, everyone. I am Hanne Knappe from the European Center for Development Policy Management. Welcome to the fifth and final episode of our Climate Adaptation Talks. Today, I'm talking to Mrs. Kitty van der Heide, who is the Director General of International Cooperation at the Ministry of Foreign Affairs of the Netherlands. Previously, she worked as a Director for Europe-Africa Relations at the World Resources Institute. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, thanks for inviting me to this important podcast. Well, it's an absolute pleasure having you. So in the previous episodes, we discussed adaptation from various angles, such as South-South learning, climate finance, food systems or conflicts. Now, in this concluding episode, we would like to ask you for your thoughts on what came out from the previous episodes and also what are the Dutch priorities in the field of adaptation? One of our guests was Cynthia Lozano, adaptation expert at the European Investment Bank, and she told us that the bank has the ambition to become a climate bank. One of the goals is to dedicate more than 50% of all spending to climate activities, also with a much stronger focus on adaptation. Currently, the bank has spent less than 10% on adaptation, and one of the reasons for this has been the interests and the priorities of the EU member states. What is the position of the Netherlands on mitigation versus adaptation? And do you think that the bank should rebalance its activities towards adaptation? And if so, how? Adaptation is incredibly important. I really applaud the European Investment Bank for their target, for having developed a climate bank roadmap to deliver on this target. And I really hope that this is an inspiration for other banks to follow both in the public sector as well as in the private sector. When it comes to adaptation, I mean, let's be honest, we know that we're already uh, about 1.2 degrees above the pre-industrial average in temperature. So adaptation is going to have to be included in all climate work. It can never just be about mitigation. It's a false choice between mitigation and adaptation. We need both, but adaptation will be needed worldwide, including in the developed world. In, in the case of the Dutch development portfolio, which I'm in charge of, we spend of the public money that we devote to climate finance about 46% on adaptation, which is an unusually high percentage, even among other donors. And we do this for a reason. Again, we cannot achieve the SDGs. We cannot address inequalities and poverty eradication if we do not integrate adaptation into the portfolio. So it's about 46%, almost half of what we do. Almost all of that is geared towards the LDC, so the least developed countries, which is by no means easy. We have about 20% of our portfolio that is dedicated to mitigation. When it comes to adaptation and harking back to your previous episodes in this po podcast, the majority of the adaptation spending is a result of our work related to food and water, because obviously it is the hydrological cycle and all the implications that that has for food systems through which climate impacts are felt. 
and where climate adaptation will be most important, particularly again with uh, the perspective of poverty eradication. It's very positive to hear that the Netherlands has dedicated almost 50% of all climate spending to adaptation. Now, we know that another priority of the European Investment Bank is to expand its work on climate resilience innovation. And for this, private sector engagement will be key. But we also know that the role of the private sector in adaptation has been quite limited so far. One of the reasons for that is, of course, that adaptation and resilience building are not profit making. So what do you see as the best attainable objectives for the private sector in adaptation? And given your experience, which valuable lessons can we learn on private sector engagement? Um, look, we're never going to get to the ambitious targets that we need to achieve by 2030 with just public money alone. And let's let's make no mistake about the implications of the coronavirus that will dampen the impact on GNI growth, and therefore it will have a big impact on ODA budgets worldwide as well. So the private sector has always been an important partner in addressing these challenges and will probably grow an even more important partner in the near future as public uh, public spending will be under intense scrutiny. I do see the private sector as a complement to the public sector. I don't think that the private sector can do it on its own. And what we have seen through, for example, the Global Commission on Adaptation is that there is a huge leverage factor. If you invest 1.8 trillion in climate change adaptation, that delivers 7.1 trillion in total net benefits. Now, what you see is a tendency, certainly in the Netherlands, but I would say across the globe, that the private sector also wants to invest in achieving the SDGs. If they want to be relevant to the SDGs, they're going to have to invest in adaptation. And as I said, there's a, there's a very clear leverage factor. Because a lot of the adaptation work is around water and food, we have quite a lot of experience in working with the private sector. As a, as a country, we have obviously suffered from all of these challenges already when it comes to addressing, uh, for example, too much water, too little water, uh, salt intrusion, subsidence, all the issues that climate change will exacerbate. And so we've seen a very clear business case also in adaptation, for example, how you manage highly water efficient drip irrigation. There are many ways in which the private sector can be involved in adaptation, but it's going to require a higher risk appetite. And that's where I think blending of public and private finance, including the role of the public finance to help with risk mitigation for private sector investments, I think there is a big appetite, but the public sector will also have to work with the private sector to make sure that that materializes in solid investments in, for example, difficult markets in Africa. When we look specifically at the national level, the issue is often having the right climate investments in national budgets. We spoke to Salim Mulhouk, one of the leading global voices on adaptation, and he told us that Bangladesh has allocated 7.5% of its national budget to climate activities, and all ministries now have a built-in adaptation program. This sounds quite promising, but so far it has been also very difficult to replicate this in African countries. So you already told us that 46% of all climate spending by the government of the Netherlands is going to adaptation. How is your government now helping developing countries also in Africa to do this, so to make the right climate investments in national budgets? Look, I think if you look at this from a historic perspective, uh, I was deeply involved in developing the uh, SDGs in the UN. 
And I recall that everything related to climate, everything related to environment was really seen as a Western conditionality. It wasn't home-owned. There wasn't a whole lot of appetite in many governments that were struggling with entrenched poverty to include environmental challenges, including climate, into the overall development portfolio. Where we are now is, I think, an increased recognition across the globe, both in developed and developing nations, that climate change is real, that climate change is already impacting our economies, that it has a major impact on the livelihoods of real people in real lives, and therefore must be integrated into uh, not just the national budget, not just the Ministry of Finance, but across the board in a whole-of-government approach. But this obviously isn't easy. I mean, even as a developed country, we're struggling with how to do this effectively. And so one of the things that we have done as the Netherlands is being an active partner in the NDCP partnership since its inception in 2016. And that partnership really aims to bring ownership to uh, governments across the world that are interested in integrating climate change, both adaptation and mitigation, into their national budgets but then also to provide them with the technical expertise, the financial expertise to then deliver on it. That partnership now has over 180 members, both countries and institutions, out of which 38 African countries. What we're doing here is, again, trying to take a real whole-of-government approach, but also a whole-of-society approach, so looking at the involvement of NGOs, looking at local private sector, including local wisdom in the national adaptation and mitigation plans and really looking also at integrating gender and youth. And it's this type of partnerships that put countries in control of climate action by supporting them rather than us telling them what to do. So, so far what we've seen is a huge uptick in uh, demand for the type of support that NDCP delivers, which is on demand, again, for homegrown interest in uh, addressing the climate change challenge. And I think with the rising awareness, the increased disasters that we see, this demand will only grow. And it's up to us to help deliver in the best way possible, because we are really losing the time. We don't have the luxury of time anymore. It's very good to hear that the NDC partnership has been effective in helping countries to integrate climate into their development efforts. In our episode about climate and conflicts, we spoke with Ibrahima Fofana, who is an expert working in Mali for the NGO Wetlands International, and he emphasized the importance of including local expertise and local knowledge in resilience building, also as a way to reduce probability of conflicts and to manage conflicts. So how is the Netherlands promoting the inclusion and the exchange of local knowledge in its climate adaptation efforts in developing countries? Generally, and almost as a principle, the Netherlands strongly believes in working with local partners. Local partners have their boots on the ground. They understand the local realities from a cultural, from a natural, from a socioeconomic, from a political perspective. And therefore, they are the best placed to address this in the context that they live in. Now, if you look at humanitarian aid, localizing aid, as we call it, is already an objective with a quantified target, 25% through local agencies. We don't have this type of target with uh, regular development cooperation, but it's definitely something that we at the Netherlands are uh, striving towards because we believe that it's far more effective. That isn't just true for adaptation, but it is certainly true for adaptation. And that's one of the reasons that in the context of the Climate Adaptation Summit, and particularly the African Adaptation 
segment that we are hosting, we've asked one of our partners, CDKN, to publish a policy paper on what is needed for successful and accelerated adaptation action in Africa. And of course, you won't be surprised that one of the outcomes of this paper is really the the need to identify and support relevant indigenous knowledge. Another one is the principle of fusing local wisdom with scientific projections of future climate change to inform development decisions with longer term horizons. Um, that's the type of information that we as a donor community need. Those are grounding sort of principles that should guide our actions and our financing. And again, we have tried to do this across the board. And just one example where we do this, we have worked, like on adaptation, we've worked for a very long time on gender issues in promoting gender equality. And very often this is done through Western institutions, right? Mm -hmm. um, we've made it a dedicated effort to support local feminist organizations to do this work. Rather than organizations from the north, we need to tap into local knowledge to embolden local strength to make sure that appropriate action is taken, but also that people are able to use the power of their voice in their own situations. And so it is both sort of the democratization of aid, as well as it being much more effective than the sort of old school development work, the way we used to organize it. So localization of aid for us is incredibly important. And I just want to say that African thought leaders have also been very clear that this is what they want, this is what they need, and that's also what we support. Interesting to hear that there is such an important emphasis on working with local people who are, in the end, the ones who know the context the best, of course. In that regard, in one of our podcast episodes, we spoke with Caroline Mongera, a farming systems expert working on the ground with local people in Kenya. And she told us that providing climate information services also for adaptation to farmers is quite high on the policy agenda in many African countries. And so these services could be apps, for example, on mobile phones for farmers to get access to real-time information on climate risks. However, she told us also that in reality, adoption rates are still quite low. And there are many reasons for that. There is, for instance, still low literacy among farmers. In remote areas, there is limited access to mobile phones. And also extension services are often weak. Now, one of the action themes of the Climate Adaptation Summit this month is accelerating African adaptation. My question is, how can technological innovation and digital solutions improve adaptation or how can they accelerate African adaptation, especially for the most vulnerable people? We do have a number of really good examples on where technological innovation can help inform decision-making. One of the systems I would like to, to mention here is Resource Watch, which is hosted by the World Resources Institute, but is basically a partnership of many, many data providers and others, including Google, Amazon, and others, allowing users anywhere in the world access to data for free, because there is not a lack of data. The problem is that many of the data are behind paywalls. And so making sure that also the most vulnerable communities can use data, it is absolutely important that data is seen as a global public good and that data are being made available for free. 
And so in Resource Watch, for example, what you can see is that all these data are available for free for anybody in the world at any time. And they include local data, they include global data. But this, I think, is the type of platform that we need to ensure that people everywhere have access to data. Those data may not always be detailed enough for the individual farmer to take the right decisions as to when to uh, sow their seeds or harvest their crops. We do have specific programs. For example, in the Netherlands, we have the Dutch Space Agency working in Mali since 2015 to work together with herder associations to co-create, that's commercial, an information service that's tailor-made to herders' information and decision-making needs. So while it is commercial, it is reaching by now 55,000 users in very hard-to-reach areas with digital information. That's the type of projects that we hope to scale up in the future. And so it's always going to be a combination between what we can do commercially and what is needed from a poverty eradication perspective in hard to reach communities where data will be needed for free. But I do believe that this is a highly effective, in principle, highly accessible method to make sure that we advance on the climate adaptation agenda. So I have very high hopes for this agenda, though it requires a lot more work to make it accessible for everyone. Good to hear that efforts are being made not only to generate data, but also to share it for free and to make sure that it is accessible also to people who need it the most. Now, earlier, um, you made a short reference to the corona pandemic and the implications for public spending. And before we conclude our conversation, I'd just like to go back to that point. We are finding ourselves now at a crossroads due to the socioeconomic consequences of this pandemic. But do you see any potential positive repercussions for the global community? In times of despair, like we have now with Corona, mm -hmm. uh, I'm, all, I'm always trying to see where the silver lining is. And obviously, Corona is threatening real lives, pushing our economies to the brink of collapse anywhere in the world. Uh, but it's also a huge opportunity to reform the way we look at our economies and we look at our societies. And so if you realize that at this moment, the amount of money from public budgets spent on relief and recovery of Corona mm -hmm. is equivalent to 17% of the global GDP. That is a huge, enormous, never before in the history of economic scene, public sector injection in our economies. If we use that money well, if we use that money to rebuild an economy that is low carbon, more equitable and resilient to climate change, we can actually do something that we haven't done before. That is delivering on the future that we have as a world community enshrined in the SDGs and the Paris commitments. So we can do it. There is an opportunity now, but then we have to make sure that the decisions that we take over the next 18 months, how that huge sum of money from public sector budget is going to be spent, is spent in a low carbon resilient way. And so my call to everybody attending the Climate Adaptation Summit and the Glasgow Climate Summit later this year is to make sure that that really happens, because this is a once in a lifetime chance. If we let this one slip, it's going to haunt us for the next 10,000 years. Well, thank you, Mrs. van der Heide, for sharing your insights on our adaptation questions and for telling us more about the priorities that the Dutch government has in the field of adaptation. I wish you the best of luck in your work and, of course, also at the Climate Adaptation Summit. Thank you for allowing me to participate. 
thank you at home for joining us on this series. We hope you enjoyed learning more about the climate adaptation efforts and challenges in countries like Bangladesh, Mali, and Kenya, and within financial and governmental institutions. For all our climate adaptation work, go to our climate change dossier at ecdpm.org. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter at ecdpm to stay up to date on all our latest papers, blogs, and news on EU-Africa cooperation.